Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to AOA on this Memorial Day, a very special holiday as we remember those who have gone on before us and especially those who have served our country very special day as we observe this Memorial Day. We thank you for being with us and letting us be part of your day. Coming up, we're going to talk about a number of issues, but we'll start it off with U.S.-China trade relations. I talked recently with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Mike, I think the relationship, the trading relationship between the U.S. and China continues to limp along as it did from the previous administration. Uh, We have seen a major rebound in good exports to China over the the last year. The most recent export data was from 2020. We saw that exports grew 18% from a decade low in 2019. Obviously, a big part of that was because of the removal of some of the tariffs and the cessation of some of the trade war. But overall, we're we're seeing positive purchases from China. I I think one of the questions that we have in our interactions with the U.S. government is would China have made these purchases without the trade deal that was negotiated between the two sides? And I think there's some in the the Department of Agriculture in particular that, that believe maybe they would have. So, you know, overall, I think the trading numbers look good and the relationship continues on a, a fairly moderately positive trajectory. Yeah, that's the question I've been asking and wondering about these purchases, which China keeps making of our grain. Uh, would they have done that even without the phase one trade deal or did the phase one trade deal make that make it easier for them to do that or i i just don't get the sense that they're trying to meet commitments of phase one that they're buying more because they they feel they need it yeah i think that's exactly right mike and and what we've seen is that many of the export numbers from 2018 were just now getting back to those those levels now in some of the areas the phase one trade deal did make some significant progress particularly in what we call the non-tariff barriers or the restrictions on rectopamine and in certain products in the u.s and the restrictions on u.s poultry and restrictions on u.s beef those were lifted which allowed uh, effectively brand new market opportunities for the first time in, in a decade for many of these products products. That obviously came about as a result of the successful negotiation of the phase one trade deal. But if we look at some of the other areas like oil seeds or corn, I think many believe that China is probably just making those purchases because they have the demand. Their hog population is coming back and, and they, they frankly just, just need the corn for feed. I guess a lot of farmers, especially right now, saying, well, we're, we don't care which it is, whether they're meeting the phase one trade deal or they're just needing it we're just glad they're buying but uh, trying to look at the legs of this uh, uh, of the situation are they going to keep doing it uh, is this just a short-term situation uh, so that's why we look at the overall relationship from a non-ag standpoint jake what are you seeing as far as business between the two countries from a non-ag standpoint, at least from an export perspective, things go fairly well across the board. Semiconductors are way up over the last year. It's a big export product of Idaho and Oregon. You know, one of the areas that's maybe a little less positive is in aircraft exports. Uh, the deterioration of the relationship at the end of the Trump administration has meant that China hasn't been making the big airline purchases that they traditionally make from the United States 
And, and as a result, that's really hit some of the, the manufacturing states that rely on that, like, like South Carolina. Uh, when we talk to our member companies that are in China, they tell us that on the ground, things are effectively back to normal. COVID-19 is not really affecting domestic consumption. Most American companies are in China for China, so they're making things in China to sell to Chinese citizens. And because their economy is effectively up and running, business is going pretty well. And because we don't have the same day-to-day really acerbic comments and exchanges between the U.S. and China, there's less of that pressure on business uh, that that really began to affect folks in the last year of the Trump administration. What's the overall trade balance or imbalance as far as how much we sell China overall, not just agriculture, but overall as compared to what we buy from them? So last year we sold $123 billion of goods to China and something like $50 billion in services. I think we purchased somewhere in the $600 billion. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but we run a significant trade deficit with China. People like us, the U.S.-China Business Council, we don't feel like the trade deficit is the best metric for assessing the health of the overall relationship. Uh, but we, we, there's a significant trade deficit that the U.S. and China have. And frankly, it's, it's larger today than it was four years ago. Even larger, even with all the purchases. I mean, again, we focus on the ag purchases, which we we talk a lot about. But overall, the imbalance is even greater than it was four years ago. That's right. Hmm. Talking with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. All right, Jake, I saw something about... Uh, China in talks to perhaps join TPP. Of course, the U.S. opted out of being part of TPP. If China gets into that trade group, where does that leave the U.S.? It's a great question, and and I think it's something that gives a little bit of anxiety to the new administration. It was raised during the Alaska meetings that the U.S. and China had a, a few months ago, and I think the question is, just as you posed, China just signed a new trade deal called the Regional Cooperation Economic Partnership, RCEP. If it joins TPP, that would create a significant trade pact with its with a number of countries in the region as well. As you know, the United States doesn't have a ton of appetite today for signing new trade agreements. There's a feeling that maybe they haven't been good for American workers. Uh, But all that said, my feeling, Mike, is that the high standards that TPP would require of China, that there be new intellectual property rights protections, that data flow and cross-border data restrictions be uh, removed, that state-owned enterprises and their roles in the in, in the economy that those be addressed i'm not sure that reasonable people believe china can reach those high standards and join the agreement at least today but if they did at least from the, the structural change that would be good for all companies that operate in the market and perhaps the u.s and china can find some kind of agreement uh, where china can raise its standards join tpp the u.s can join but It's going to be a really bumpy road here with our own domestic politics for the next several years, frankly. That's interesting. You you think it would be hard for China to meet those standards that would be required? Um, I guess part of me is skeptical, says, well, they'd say they would, but then, you know, a few years into it, you'd find out they still hadn't. Uh, But uh, what do you, you you think, how, what odds would you put on it, the chances of them actually getting into TPP? I'd give it a 5% chance. 
Really? That low? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that, I think it's it's an interesting idea, and I think it's something that they're using now as a, as a foil against the United States. Generally, less pro-trade stance that we've seen over the last number of years. So it positions China globally to be perceived as a champion of the liberal economic order and trying to drive forward these new agreements. I don't think that it can meet the standards that are set out in TPP, but and as a result, I think the likelihood of them actually moving forward with something and joining the agreement are, are low. Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. May is Mental Health awareness month this is something that we don't talk nearly enough about it can be difficult uncomfortable at times talking about it but it's important as we look at our own health and the health of those around us our guest now is dr josie rudolphy an assistant professor at the university of illinois and an associate research scientist with the national children's center for rural and agricultural health and safety dr rudolphy thank you for joining us Thank you for having me. Why is this such an important topic, as, and especially as, as for everyone, but as we look at those in agriculture and dealing with the stresses and pressures that go along with farming and ranching, you know, as I said earlier, just something that a lot of people don't like to talk about or don't feel comfortable talking about, but this is a certainly a very serious and important issue, isn't it? Absolutely. It's incredibly important. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. We know that this, this past year has been a challenge for everybody. Um, we know rates of suicide are increasing across most um, subpopulations. We know um, that mental health conditions are very, very common in the United States in general. Um, and we know that mental health conditions are associated with chronic stress. And we, we look at occupations that are incredibly stressful. Um, agriculture um, is certainly towards the top. We think about um, the uniqueness of some of these stressors specifically. Um, working in isolation day in and day out, uh, working incredibly long days, inconsistent hours, um, and having very little control over a lot of our production necessities, which include things like um, the, perhaps the availability of inputs, um, certainly the weather, um, time pressures, and then, of course, commodity prices. So um, realizing the, the relationship between stress and health um, and stress and mental health um, mental health is certainly something we need to be talking about in agriculture. We kind of need to keep a close watch on ourselves, but also those around us, don't we? And some, and maybe some signs we want to make sure we don't ignore or overlook that uh, someone may need some help and we can help them in some way. Absolutely. I think uh, we all have a responsibility to keep an eye on our farming friends and family members. Oftentimes, it's hard for us to acknowledge changes in ourselves, and that's why, just like you said, it's really important that we uh, sort of have a community approach to this and we keep an eye on one another. Um, some important things to keep keep an eye on are changes in, um, in behaviors, whether they're related to... Um, uh, emotional changes or behavioral changes. Um, we want to watch for uh, changes in sleeping patterns and perhaps appetite, um, but also changes in emotions. Are, are people 
more agitated perhaps than usual? Um, are they easily bothered by things that typically wouldn't bother them? Um, have you noticed changes in substance use? Are they drinking more than they used to? Um, so those are the things we want to keep an eye on and then acknowledge. Um, and that's a really hard conversation to have, um, but it, it's certainly one that we encourage. And, and it starts by expressing concern for somebody. Um, and when you open by expressing concern, it's really, really hard for somebody to come back and say, you know, butt out, this is none of your business. So we want to say things like, I've noticed you know, that you're drinking more than you usually are. I've noticed that you're not sleeping anymore. Um, is something bothering you? How can I help? Those sorts of things. We're talking with Dr. Josie Rodolfi, an assistant professor at the University of Illinois, talking about Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, Dr. Rodolfi, there's a line there, I think, that is difficult for many of us. Uh, that line of okay, I'm concerned, do I reach out to someone and, and talk to them about it, bring it up, or do I mind my own business, not infringe on, on their privacy? That can be a difficult line to know where it's at and whether to step across or not. Absolutely, and I think it's a, that's a really important point, and I think you know, the first question is you ask, what's my relationship with this person? Is this a friend? Is this a family member? Um, and if you could answer yes to either of those, I think we all have a responsibility um, to ask those questions. I, I agree. Um, they can be awkward and they can be uncomfortable. There's some really great uh, short courses um, that we're promoting for the agricultural community to really increase somebody's confidence and competency in asking those types of questions uh, and becoming a little bit more aware of some really common mental health conditions. Now, if you say, I'm not a friend, I'm, I'm not a confidant, I'm not a family member, perhaps I'm a banker or I'm a salesperson, um, and I really don't think it's my place to ask these types of questions, my recommendation would be um, if you know that person's, you know, individuals within that person's circle, reach out to them. And you don't have to disclose a lot, but you could reach out to their spouse and say, you know, I talked with your spouse today, they seemed a little upset would you check on them, right? We, we probably know the people that um, are in those inner circles um, and what we can do is reach out to them and sort of alert them uh, if we feel like it's, it's really not our place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, we talk a lot about farm safety, about being careful. We think of, of physical things, working around machinery and things like that. But this is a part of uh, farm safety as well, isn't it? It absolutely is. It's, it's certainly emerging as... Um, uh, an area of concern, and I think, you know, as somebody who works in agricultural safety and health, um, this is really sort of at that nexus because we have to recognize uh, if we are incredibly stressed, if we are experiencing symptoms of anxiety or depression, that is undoubtedly going to interfere the way with the way we work. Um, we know that uh, we could be at increased risk for injury. Uh, when we're distracted and we're operating very large equipment, uh, we could see how that could certainly contribute to an incident or an injury. And children going through stress, too, and need we need to reach out to them. And even them feeling the stress that maybe is happening with uh, adult members of their family. Absolutely. We know that children are not naive or, or um, you know, uh, ignorant to what's happening in a family. Uh, we know that family stress is often experienced by everybody in that household. Um, and what's really interesting from the farm perspective is that um, children are often engaged in the farming operation. So you think about how that's different than other occupations. Um, if you work in healthcare, it's probably 
not super likely that your child's going to go to work with you and perhaps see and experience what you see and experience as a healthcare provider. Um, but on the farm, that's very much the case. We have children um, and adolescents working alongside adult farmers. Um, we have conversations about the farm at dinner. Um, and like I said, children absorb this type of information. And, and, and if it's stressful in the family and somebody's experiencing stress, we you know, have to believe and, and be concerned about the child in that environment too because uh, of what they could be experiencing. So being aware of possible uh, issues, that's one thing. Uh, being willing to reach out to help, that's another. Then finding the help. What are the resources that are available? Good question. Uh, we, um, the USDA has funded four farm and ranch stress assistance uh, networks, one in each region of the U.S. Um, in the North Central region, um, the North Central Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Center is uh, uh, centered at the University of Illinois, uh, but we serve 12 states in the upper Midwest region. Um, and we just released our Clearinghouse website, and that address is farmstress.org. Um, there we have a clearinghouse of resources and services available to uh, agricultural producers, their family members, and agricultural workers in that 12-state North Central region. We also include links to telephone helplines, help if that's something a producer is interested in, um, a number of different resources, um, as well as uh, information about various training opportunities that are available um, to help increase somebody's awareness and, and competencies around mental health. Well, like we said, I mean, it's almost like there's a stigma of that's attached to this, and, and someone may hesitate to reach out either to help someone else or get help for themselves. And we want to try to get past that, right? And so they feel uh, more at ease about reaching out and, and getting the help they need. Absolutely. We're certainly trying to um, normalize conversations around mental health. Um, uh, and I think we are getting there. Um, but realizing some people are still very hesitant to, to talk about um, mental health openly. Um, there are certainly more anonymous ways to engage with a mental health provider or at least um, um, somebody who can provide some crisis intervention. And those include things like the Iowa Concern Hotline, um, which is a telephone helpline in the Midwest, um, available to anybody in those 12, in that 12-state region um, that I mentioned, um, as well as, as a couple of, of, of organizations that work to connect producers to um, professional health care providers, um, such as licensed, licensed, licensed professional counselors. Well, it's an incredibly uh, important topic, a critical issue. And uh, Dr. Rodolfi, thank you for joining us and giving us some uh, very helpful information. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Dr. Josie Rodolfi, an assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Again, this is Mental Health Awareness Month. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
Well, most of our attention seems has been on domestic issues. Uh, commodity prices have been strong. We've had good sales with China, so we haven't talked a whole lot about trade. But we have some trade issues that uh, we need to keep a close watch on. And want to get some perspective on those from someone who uh, certainly can give us great perspective because he's been at the negotiating table working on USMCA, working on phase one with uh, China. And that is former ambassador, our U.S. Uh, chief ag negotiator, uh, for the U.S. Trade Representative's office, uh, just recently wrapped up that job. Greg Dowd, he's now with uh, Aimpoint Research. Greg, good to talk with you again. How are you? Mike, I'm just fine. Good to talk to you. How are you? Very good. First of all, your thoughts on how things are going with China. They're continuing to buy. A lot of speculation about what the uh, relationship will be between the Biden administration and China and, and policy moving forward. But uh from your perspective, having negotiated the deal, how do you look at it now and how it's going? Okay, so a couple basic points to start the discussion. Uh, we negotiated in the phase one agreement, there are some 57 structural changes that we asked China to make that are, that are in the deal. Everybody should know that at this point, uh, from my perspective, 52, 53, 54 of those plus or minus are done, complete, China has done them. And so in large part, uh, almost, you know, 100% compliance. What we're talking about is we have some issues on right dopamine, biotechnology, and then two WTO cases. But I think, in, in, in large part, they're doing those things as well. So I think, in terms of compliance with the deal, it's very good. What that means for us in agriculture is that, Mike, before we started the negotiation with China, we had about 1,500 facilities in the U.S. eligible to export ag products to China, 1,500. Today, as a result of all the changes that we've made as, as part of phase one, we have way over 4,000 facilities in the U.S. eligible to export products to China. I'm talking about dairy facilities, hay facilities, meat processing facilities. You know, it, it has been a huge change in terms of what we've seen. So we're, you know, the, last year we saw record ag exports to China, and that's amazing to me considering it really was only nine months of the year that we got this thing going, and we see what we have on the books now on the grain side. We see what we're doing on the meat side, which is, in terms of beef, it's way beyond what I ever thought it would be. I thought we would do a thousand tons a week. We're doing three thousand tons a week of beef to China. How much of it is because of the trade deal, or how much of it just because they need uh, those commodities right now? Uh, the answer is both. Um, we would have never gotten to these 4,000 facilities without this agreement. I mean, we had, there are so many changes. We, it was 33 negotiating sessions, hundreds of hours that we spent helping try to figure out how to get our regulatory system matched up better with their regulatory system to, to talk to each other and get these things done. And, and both my counterpart, the, the vice minister of ag, and I, we all realized how historic this conversation was. And I think it's bearing fruit. And I think you know, the geopolitics of the relationship between the U.S. and China is really complicated. We all know that. But at least we have an ag. We, we have now an ability to talk to each other, trade with each other. This is important to China. This is really important to us. Do you think there'll be a phase two? And if so, what would that include? It's a great question that I get a lot. And, and the answer is, not in the foreseeable future. I don't. I don't think the. My opinion is, for what it's worth, is the Biden administration. I don't think is going to do anything with regard to the China situation. I think it's good right where it is. We leave it where it is. But in terms of phase two, like 
That involves things like getting China to stop their state trading enterprises, their state subsidies and the way they do things. And these are bedrock principles of the Communist Party in China. They're not going to change those things. <laughs> so yeah. the idea of, of, of getting that changed in a phase two, I, I, I just, it's not in the cards in the foreseeable future, in my opinion. We're talking with former U.S. Chief Ag Negotiator Greg Dowd. Greg, when we often talk about how agriculture is just part of the picture and there are so many other issues in trade deals and trade negotiations that take place, and it seems like sometimes agriculture gets impacted by other things. Uh, when you're at that negotiating table, how much does that impact or influence what gets done from an ag standpoint and when you're negotiating trade deals, how much do those other outside factors figure in and put pressure on the ag portion of a deal? It's a great question, and it's a complicated question. So, so the answer is, when you're in the room negotiating the deal, are there trade-offs between, say, industrial products and ag products? Typically, no. Typically, ag is done within the lane and the context of ag when you're negotiating the agreement. However... My answer to that question would be, so often we have other things that get us wrapped around the axle uh, outside of agriculture that we don't actually have an ability to get to the table and have a deal. So the point is, there are certainly other things other than agriculture that prevent us from getting to the point where we can sit down and talk about ag issues. So, but once we get sat down at the table, usually we, we, you know, you're confined to talking about ag and you don't horse trade back and forth with other things, generally speaking. Does that, am I making sense in what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. I think in agriculture, we get kind of a, a very narrow focus. We want j just to look at agriculture and sometimes wish we, it could all be kind of in a vacuum and not be impacted by the other things. But as you point out, it can't be totally in a vacuum, right? Well, it, it, the vacuum is that it, you know, there are a lot of deals that I would have liked to have done in ag, but because of other issues, you can't actually get to the table with the other countries. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Yeah. All right. So um, our new U.S. trade representative, Catherine Tai, is soon going to be talking with leaders from uh, Canada and Mexico at, about USMCA. Uh, we know there are ongoing dairy issues with Canada. We have now some uh, GMO issues with Mexico. Uh, what are your thoughts on these early tests for USMCA? Well, it's, it, you're exactly right. That's exactly where we are here. You, know, you, you negotiate the agreement. I think it's really solid in terms of what we did with Canada and dairy. Unprecedented in terms of, as, as uh, Colin Peterson once said, this first time anybody's ever got a chink in the armor up there in that Canadian dairy industry. Mm -hmm. And I think that's right. And it was really, really hard to do. And we're going to have to hold their feet to the fire. And, and I, there's no question in my mind they're going to try to wiggle out and wiggle around, and we're going to have to you know, make sure that they don't do that. And so this will be an interesting conversation. I think the USTR folks are very well aware and adept at, at dealing with that. But, you know, you, you have to start with the initial conversation. I think it's going to take time to work all through that on, on Canada and dairy, but we've got to keep a very close eye on those guys up there. That's a, that's an interesting industry up in Canada. In terms of Mexico and biotech, the, the point is that we are now approaching the halfway mark of AMLO's, Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico's six-year term. 
And he's got a lot of activism down there in terms of anti-glyphosate, anti-use of technology in agriculture, anti-biotech corn. But they import 16 million tons of corn from the United States. There's absolutely no way that they can replace that. And they know that. And and so you you get uh, talking out of both sides of your mouth down there in Mexico, depending on who you talk to. And, And I think that's the struggle everybody's having is we understand that they can't you know, do something crazy, but that doesn't mean that some people aren't going to try and they're not going to really talk about it. And and so I, I'm really unnerved by Mexico. I, I'll be honest with you, Mike. I, I, it, it, I don't like what's going on down there with regard to how they're discussing the use of technology in agriculture. Uh, we, we've got to keep a close eye on this because towards the, you know, they, a lot of these things don't go into effect until the end of his term, but that doesn't mean they couldn't stir up a lot of trouble in the meantime. Hmm, something to watch for sure then. Uh, and yesterday we talked with the National Pork Producers Council, uh, frustrated about the situation in Vietnam, high tariffs that we have to pay to sell pork into there. Other countries don't have those high tariffs. Uh, what's that like trying to negotiate, maybe get something done into that market? What do you see there? Do you remember having talks uh, with the Vietnamese officials on that issue? I uh, Not on that issue. I did... Uh make a trip there and, and made some real progress with them on issues such as biotech and, and other things once upon a time. The, uh, I think the challenge right now in Vietnam is they've got African swine fever. And, and I think it's a situation where they're trying to you know, hold on to their domestic industry that is probably in really dire straits right now, given what's going on. So it's it's got to be a tenuous situation over there in the pork industry in Vietnam, which is which is really kind of a bedrock thing as part of their agriculture. It's a big industry. It's important to them in terms of food security and domestically. And so I, I, I you know, I my sense is that they're going to be, you know, hard to deal with here for a little bit as, as they go through this crisis that they have. And it's a mess. And, and you see it, you know, in, in China as well, as you're going to see hot spots over there, you know, uh, ASF is not one of these things that you have for a while and it just disappears. It's going to be a problem for a long time, and we have got to fight like everything we have to keep it out of the United States. That's the Mm -hmm. truth as well. Greg, good to talk with you as always. Uh, Appreciate the chance to catch up a little bit, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you. Take care. Take care. We'll see you. All right. Greg Dowd, now with Aimpoint Research, uh, former ambassador our U.S. Chief Ag Negotiator. He was in on the negotiating for USMCA and with Phase 1 with China. Interesting his thoughts and concerns about the direction on uh, some of these biotech issues that they're taking in in Mexico. We'll be watching that. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. 
Growth Energy has launched a new consumer campaign to encourage drivers to choose biofuels for a cleaner planet. Here to tell us about it is Emily Score, CEO for Growth Energy. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us about this campaign. Most consumers don't know about ethanol, and if they do, they're going to parrot out some of the opposition messaging. So there's a lot of misinformation out there. So the way that we kind of capture their attention is by connecting with them on the climate. You want to make a simple change. Hey, here's something. And the, the reason that we're using the biofuels language is because we know through our market research and insights that consumers have a very favorable attitude toward biofuels. They intuitively understand, oh, biofuels, it's renewable energy, it's good for the planet. So they have very positive associations with biofuels. They just don't automatically know that ethanol is also a biofuel. So we're capturing them on things that are top of mind. We're bringing forward nomenclature like biofuels that they understand and they associate with positivity. And then we're leading them down the path saying, hey, this thing, ethanol, that you hadn't thought of before, you, put, you can put it in your gas tank and you can, you can make some, accomplish something good for the planet. We've been touting the environmental benefits of ethanol for years and years, but it takes, uh, I guess, the right circumstances to get people to really listen and tune into the message. And I think maybe we're into that time now. I think we are. Um, certainly we are from a political perspective. I mean, the conversation in Washington, D.C. is very much about climate, and that reflects where we are as a country. And as an industry, you know, we are very excited to be able to be part of that climate dialogue to demonstrate that we're a solution. So there's a lot of excitement within the industry about where our national dialogue is going. We know that we are a solution that can be used today. And so, you know, I think timing is divine. And so now is the time for us to be able to connect with a consumer and start to change attitudes and perceptions once and for all. And as we get consumers asking for E15, maybe that helps get E15 more available as retailers see that growing demand out there. Our goal is that E15 becomes the standard fuel choice nationwide. And so with this undertaking, with this added consumer engagement, we have full throttle industry effort. So we're pursuing pro-growth policy, we are leveraging commercial opportunities, and we're spurring consumer demand. So with those three elements, we have kind of that E15 trifecta, and we need all three things to get to that next step where E15 is the standard fuel nationwide. It's hard sometimes to get people to to think about bigger picture when they're fueling up. A lot of people just pull into the filling station and get gas and move on. Now we're starting to find motors thinking about broader issues such as the environment and what's in the fuel that they're putting in their vehicles. There's a lot happening right now on this front. It's a real an opportunity. I, I find myself thinking, wow, we've been talking about this for so long why haven't they already received this message? But whatever it is now, we got to get this point across, right? Fuel and fossil fuels are more top of mind in large part because of our COVID experience. Last summer when we had shelter in place and drivers stopped driving, particularly people in urban areas, they could actually see what clean air looks like and they had not experienced it before. Now they want to be able to get back on the road, but they want to be able to maintain their their air quality as well. There really is a motivation among consumers and an appetite to do something positive for the planet. Uh, But you also know that They want to do something, is there something easy and simple that I can do? Well, we've got a very simple change that you can make. And that's the the message. I mean, the the, the takeaway for the consumer is that with biofuels in your gas tank, you fuel beyond and you become part of the climate solution. And you don't have to go buy an electric vehicle or find a charging station or, or learn about all that. And maybe some people will do that as we move maybe in that direction. But in the meantime, there's something they can do right now, and it's very simple. 
It's very simple. You can do it in the car that you have. Uh, and, you know, I encourage your listeners, go to FuelBeyond.com. You'll see some of our, our video content and our creative, and you'll see it's just it's really creative and smart, and it really meets the consumer where they are and what they're thinking about today. Yeah, I've watched that video. Very interesting. Uh, how do you see this campaign growing, then, as you move uh, through the summer and into the fall? Well, so we're, we're in a pilot phase this spring. Um, I always, when we're doing something of this magnitude, you want to do pilot and kind of work out the kinks. Uh, and then uh, the goal is that we launch this nationwide in the fall. So as you launch that nationwide, is that going to be uh, in, on a lot of different platforms then in your digital campaign? It is. So it's, you know, digital today means, um, you know, not only kind of online and social media, but connected TV. So Hulu, um, a lot of the apps that you're watching, Apple TV. So we're really tracking our target consumer, which is, uh, it tends to skew millennial and female and really kind of on the coast, you know, those who are really attentive to, to environmental issues. So, you know, we're, we're, targeting those consumers and we're targeting them in digital platforms where we know they're engaging and they're looking for content about the environment and so that's where we're going to be where we're going to be raising awareness about hey there is something that you can do today in your car that you have today that's going to be a simple change that really changes everything for the planet really tap into that that curiosity that they have right now about fuels about carbon uh, about environmental issues, uh, really make that connection perhaps with them in a way we haven't been able to before. Absolutely. And now is the time because they're looking to connect. I mean, the, the consumer today is demanding more of their products and of the companies um, that are selling the products. They're demanding that they want to understand what is my environmental impact, what can I do to reduce my environmental footprint as an individual for my family. This is an easy step that they can make without having to go purchase a brand-new vehicle. Okay, Emily, again, where can uh, people see more about your campaign, learn more about Get Biofuels? Yes, go to fuelbeyond.com, and you'll learn all about the campaign. And you, you can also type in your area, and you can find a retail station that sells E15. Perfect, fuelbeyond.com. Great. Emily, thanks a lot, and we look forward to talking with you throughout the year about how the campaign's going. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure. That's Emily Score, CEO for Growth Energy. Check out that new biofuels campaign as uh, hopefully people will be hitting the roads this summer as we start the summer season off with this Memorial Day and uh, more and more people hopefully will be choosing biofuels at the pump. We hope it'll be a very safe holiday for you. Thanks for joining us and hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.